Hello and welcome to the Android Central Podcast. My name is Daniel Bader. This week on the show, we dive into all of the new wireless earbud announcements, including a big deal announcement from Qualcomm around higher Bluetooth audio quality and what that potentially means for your listening experience. There's also a brand new Fossil smartwatch. Can it compete with the Galaxy Watch 4? Hint, it cannot. And we will explain exactly why. Microsoft has announced a new hardware event at the end of September where it will likely unveil a whole bunch of new laptops, tablets, and a Surface Duo 2. We will dive into what to expect from that. There's also a bunch of new rumors around the Galaxy S21 FE. When will that come out? We have no idea. Hopefully soon, but uh, it's coming. As well as a 200 megapixel camera sensor that Samsung is working on. Google is also working on some custom chips for Chromebooks expected to come out in 2023. And at the end of the show, we will talk about some regulatory changes that are going to impact your Google Play Store experience. So joining me for this episode is Nick Sutrick. Well, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Fantastic. Got my latte in hand. Latte? <laughs> oh, you fancy. That's, that's right. And uh, I'm super happy to welcome back Martin Barca, who uh, hasn't been on the show for a while, also known as Tech Altar on all the socials and on YouTube and Nebula, which uh, we will talk about a little bit later. Welcome back. How are you doing? Hello. I'm doing very well, although no latte in my hand. No, it's it's later in the day for you. So are you, are you an afternoon coffee drinker or do you limit your oh, yeah. coffee consumption to the morning? I can drink coffee. Uh, I, I was recently in Italy on a, on a wedding and I, I saw people drink espressos after dinner at like 10 p.m. So that blew my mind a little bit. Uh, I don't I don't go quite that that's, far, but like 6 p.m. <laughs> 6 p.m. is still OK for me. OK, yeah, you don't fly that that close to the sun, but you'll yes. you'll you'll do it at sundown more yes. or less. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I, my, I, on Sunday, it was just one of those days that you feel physically and mentally run down in, in ways that you can't quite explain. Like I have, I mean, Nick, you know this, like you, you, you have a child when your child turns around three and they, they turn out, you know, they, they end up having just endless amounts of energy um, yes. as the day wears on and you're like, how are you still jumping and singing and doing all the things you were doing five hours ago? Because I'm not doing that anymore. Um, <laughs> we had a dinner party at my mom's place for my daughter's birthday and I got into the house. I collapsed and I said, I need a coffee. And this was like 6 PM and I don't usually drink coffee that late, but it was literally the only thing that I could, other than like taking an upper, which I did not want to do. Coffee seemed like the only <laughs> cure. Yeah. Uh, so I get it. I do. Also, Martin, I was in Italy a couple of years ago and that culture around espresso in the evening, it doesn't make sense here in North America, but somehow when you're there and you're sitting on a patio and you're you know eating a late dinner, there's really nothing better than drinking a late night espresso. I, I loved it. And I, I did it while I was there and it didn't cause any sleeping issues for me. And I, I think it is like a really like a tiny espresso. So probably it doesn't throw your, your balance off that much. Uh, but I, I can't do that at home with my own coffee sizes here. Yeah, exactly. I, I, it's 
I mean, espresso has lower um, caffeine per... It's got a lower concentration of caffeine because of the way that it's brewed, right? The water, the water pushes through the espresso relatively quickly. So a, a good espresso shot, this is, you know, getting into the weeds here, but a good espresso shot takes, you know, between 25 and 35 seconds, which really does limit the extraction of the coffee. It pushes it through with a lot of force, but it does not mean that you get as much caffeine as if you're brewing a cup of coffee. Also, the volume is obviously much less. So yeah, anyway, this is not a coffee podcast. Um, so let's, let's, not, let's talk about tech. Um, so this week, there were a lot of earbud announcements. And I wanted, to t- I wanted to have Martin on the show because you put out a really interesting video earlier this week called Why Everyone is Making Wireless Earbuds. So we'll get to that in a second. But I, I just want to touch on a couple of specific announcements. Jabra, which arguably made some of the best and still makes some of the best pairs of wireless earbuds, um, put out three new uh, th- three new models this week. One was an $80 pair of earbuds that is trying to compete with just all the cheapies on Amazon, but really do them, you know, do it better. Uh, that, that's called the Elite 3. And then there's the Elite 7 Pro and 7 Active. And on their own, they're not that interesting. I mean, they're just high-end pairs of earbuds. But those two are entering a market that is very different from when the Elite 75T and, 75, and Elite Active 75T um, entered in 2019. And I spoke to the company, and it sort of acknowledged this, and it said... You know, we are trying to outclass all of these companies that have ecosystems that are trying to build ear, uh, wireless earbuds as part of a broader offering of products and services. And we have to be better than them because we don't have a phone or a wearable or something to fall back on. And Martin, I want to touch on this because that seems to be the play these days, right? Is that if you are a independent earbud manufacturer, you are at a, an enormous disadvantage than a company like Apple or Samsung or Amazon or even Google that does have other hardware products to entice people to be locked into their ecosystem. So walk us through a little bit about what your hypothesis is and why you think earbuds are still so popular, even amongst independent makers like you mentioned Nothing or Raycon and many others. Yeah, so uh, we, we track the new releases of uh, earbuds in my, in my app. And earbuds are, the after smartphones, the, most, uh, the category that sees the most releases among all consumer electronics categories. So there's clearly a huge demand for them. There's a lot of manufacturers entering and trying and throwing new things at the wall. And uh, the sales volumes are going up like crazy as well. I think Counterpoint is saying that uh, in two years, we'll be at about 800 million pairs a year being sold, uh, which is just a massive uh, product category, of course. Um, And yeah, I think there's multiple um, ways to approach this market. I think the one that that appears to be the most successful so far is the ecosystem approach. Um, 
We have, of course, Apple, uh, but also Samsung, Xiaomi, uh, and the various BBK brands as well, uh, where you have a smartphone and then you sell the earbuds as uh, part of this uh, ecosystem. Of course, uh, if, especially if you're Apple, you can have like really tight uh, integrations on, the, on a technical side that enable you to provide a better user experience than somebody just random off the street would be able to do. Um, that's a little bit more difficult to do on the Android side, you know, to make a you know meaningfully better integrated product than just some something off the shelf. But it is a, still partially possible. However, the real benefit comes from, um, of course, you already have a consumer in your ecosystem, so it's easier to upsell them to your pair of earbuds. So you reduce the uh, customer acquisition cost for a brand. You can kind of throw in your earbuds at checkout with another product, or you can try to sell them in bundles, or you can try to use that one to give a discount to the other and so on. So the the ecosystem companies, I think, are at an unfair advantage. And uh, the latest data seems to be showing that they are the ones who are not only the biggest, but also growing the fastest. So I think uh, long term, we'll see those come out on the top. But there's also a couple of other approaches. Uh, there are the sort of the independent brands like Jabra, who really try to beat everybody else and just making better products. Uh, I think that's very difficult and it's uh, it leaves you with very tight margins because you have to both spend a lot on R&D and uh, you can't really raise your prices because then you're outclassed by companies that can, you know, uh, have economic advantage over you because of their ecosystems. Um, and then the, the third kind of strategy is to say, uh, screw it, we're not going to compete on, on uh, having a better product, we're going to compete on simply brand. Uh, this is kind of the Beats, uh, the old Beats strategy before they were acquired by uh, Apple, that you just essentially create a lifestyle brand that people want to have on their heads. Of course, headphones and earbuds are are essentially a, a type of jewelry in a, in a way. So that it's not only important that they're functionally good, but that but also the the lifestyle that comes with them essentially. Um, so uh, there's brands that are trying to do this uh, more or less successfully. Uh, I think I've just, uh, uh, I said in my video that there's Raycon, of course, they're doing a lot of uh, celebrity promotions and YouTuber promotions and whatever. Uh, but there's also a, a lot of fashion brands are getting into making their own earphones. I think this week, uh, Diesel, the, the clothing brand just launched their own earphones and basically anything that you can attach, wherever you have a strong consumer brand and if you can attach ear earbuds to it, uh, there's a chance to to win not by offering a superior product necessarily, but by by uh, essentially uh, leveraging your brand to sell the product. So those are right. the strategies I see. That almost reminds me a little bit of when uh, Android Wear first started, and we had like all these random fashion brands. Felt like, like I think Diesel was even one of them, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, it's just that all of them end up being owned by Fossil. Well, <laughs> yeah, time, sure, maybe but not, still, but... I mean, it it's that kind of thing reminds me of of the same trend in the watches. And I guess, you know, in a way, I, you could think of these sort of as jewelry. I mean, a lot of people wear them all the time. They're definitely in, in some cases a fashion statement. And I mean, I would say for a while, AirPods certainly were. I think they still partially are. I think a lot of people... Because if you wear AirPods, you show not only that you have AirPods, but also that you're part of the Apple ecosystem. And right. I think that's yeah. without even it's taking a, your it's phone a status out. That's symbol a, for sure. Exactly. Exactly. You're in a gym running on your machine and hey, I'm an <laughs> Apple person. Yep. You know, I, I think it's it's less that than 
over like wearing a watch, you get used to it and you don't really think about the fact that you're wearing it. I think it took us as a culture a while to get used to people wearing earbuds while they were interacting with the outside world. And as cheaper models get better transparency modes and it allows people to sort of leave their earbuds in all the time as they interact with with other people, that has normalized that interaction mechanism. Like when I went to the store yesterday, I put on, I was wearing the new Elite 3. I put it on transparency mode. It's very natural. It does not make me feel like I'm in a bubble or that everything is sort of nasally and digital. And while I did for a second take into account that I could just take them out of my ear, it was that immediate, it was that sort of split second calculation of like, is this rude? Is this considered rude? Am I in a position where I should like all those things would not have occurred to me even two years ago. I just would have taken my earbuds out of my ear. And I know that's a very small thing. And some people listening might think that was rude and that's fair. I, I probably agree with you if I was seeing somebody else do that. But I think the calculus today is different. And I think the AirPods phenomenon has, has sort of enabled that normalization. Um, and it's a small thing, but it does speak to the fact that, you know, when you look at the breadth of choice out there, Martin, it's it's exactly as you say in the video, there there are companies that are looking for a windfall in the tech in the in the hardware tech space and it seems like wireless earbuds turnkey cheap rebranded alibaba wireless earbuds are kind of the way to go and a lot of this has to do with qualcomm which we'll get to in a second but also it just has to do with the fact that like with the removal of headphone jacks with the removal of bundled earbuds in the box of most phones, which were something you would take for granted just a couple of years ago, people have no choice but to try to augment their phones with earbuds. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and kind of to, uh, to go back a bit to the smartwatch uh, uh, comparison, I think one of the big differences is that um, the reason why Bluetooth audio works for so many brands is because you as a consumer, you have a really hard time kind of judging whether a pair of earbuds is good or not without doing a lot of research and without uh, kind of trying to understand uh, a lot of technical terms. Um, and most earbuds probably work well enough for the average user. So, you know, even even a pair of Raycoms that all of us techies love to hate on, and and I, I, I bought a pair for the video and I definitely hate them. <laughs> I think to, to most people, if you give it to them, they think they're fine. They, I'm not even sure they'd know what to look for uh, to to kind of fault them. So it's it's really a category where there's a lot of flexibility from the manufacturer to give you a an okay product and then uh, you know charge different uh, amounts based on the perceived value rather than the actual delivered value. And I think that's much more difficult to do with smartwatches or or smartphones where where the average consumer is so well trained and can can see the differences quite easily. So let's move over to talk a little bit about Qualcomm and its announcement from, from yesterday. Uh, we talked about Snapdragon Sound earlier in the year when it was announced. At the time, it was just 
it was a little nebulous. It was a re, it was a, it was sort of like a badging, a consolidation of all of Qualcomm's Bluetooth audio projects in under this one umbrella called Snapdragon Sound where an, a manufacturer would have to adhere to a stringent set of quality standards and support a certain number of codecs and use a particular set of Bluetooth um, chips from Qualcomm in order to meet the Snapdragon sound standard, at which time they would be able to brand their product, Snapdragon sound certified. And it was essentially a way to ensure quality across the board. Uh, this is also Snapdragon, Qualcomm's way of becoming more of a consumer-friendly or consumer-focused brand. And having a Snapdragon sound badge on a box of something from like Xiaomi or um, Audio-Technica, they think is going to be a meaningful addition to, to that user experience. So, you know, if, if something is Snapdragon sound branded, it has to support a particular platform. Um, it, well, it's only compatible with specific platforms. Right now, it's the Snapdragon 888. It has to use their FastConnect 6900, um, you know, connectivity uh, chip. It has to support their audio codecs and use their amps. It has to, the, the earbuds have to use a particular set of Qualcomm SOCs. And um, it has to support things like Qualcomm's active noise canceling, their Aptex adaptive audio codec, et cetera, et cetera. So yesterday in New York, during a Hurricane Ida deluge, Qualcomm hosted a in-person event where they invited Steve Aoki on stage for a concert um, to announce additions to the Snapdragon Sound ecosystem, including support for CD quality lossless audio through the Aptex lossless codec, which is an extension, not confusing at all, of Aptex adaptive. So it's not a standalone codec. It's just a, it's like an addition to Aptex lossless. Anyway, what they're also claiming is that with compatible phones, it's going to cut down on disruption on um, disconnections. It's just going to make your Bluetooth experience more reliable. Now, Nick, this has been something that we've spoken about um, for years, this idea that Bluetooth is, is the, the last truly fallible connectivity standard. Like Apple, Samsung, they can all play with Bluetooth, but at the end of the day, Bluetooth is terrible. And yes. <laughs> if you're building on top of Bluetooth, you're just building on shaky foundations and Qualcomm saying they are taking a system level approach by working with its SOC by ensuring a, a, a very stable connection throughout the entire stack. But at the end of the day, they're focusing on audio quality and saying that with Spotify and Apple supporting lossless, this is going to be a big deal. And yet I cannot bring myself to care because a pair of tiny little Bluetooth earbuds is not going to, I'm not going to be able to tell the difference when I'm listening to 16 bit, 44 kilohertz lossless audio from Spotify. I mean, right. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, I mean, you're not wrong. And 
I, this is such a tough discussion because, you know, I was one of those people who hated the 3.5 millimeter jack going away. Right? Like I fought against that because Bluetooth was just such garbage for such a long time. Um, and it it has significantly improved over the years. And I think, you know, talking about the, I guess, consistency of your connection, the reliability of it, somebody like Qualcomm taking a system level approach really is what was needed um, f- for this to mature in a way that it needs to. Um, I, I think we sort of saw that in in a way when AirPods were originally released with uh, it's the W1 chip. Um, it, it's not quite the same thing, but, you know, it addresses connectivity issues, pairing issues, like just all of these problems that we dealt with for years with Bluetooth, earbuds, headphones, anything. And um, I, I think this level of quality is probably not something consumers care too much about. I mean, I, I would love to see statistics for the number of people who actually listen to lossless audio or anywhere near that quality on these streaming services, because I f- have a feeling that most people don't even go in and change the default normal quality, much less try to go for a lossless thing. And I think the same goes for spatial audio and some of these other, you know, fun, but ultimately gimmicky technologies like yes they're improving things or making things fun they're sort of making music interesting to listen to without doing other things but at the same time it's like yeah we're we're sort of at a point of diminishing returns where sure there's a difference but i mean i suppose this is like smartphone cameras right yeah okay this new smartphone is amazing the camera's fantastic but if you compare it to last year's does anybody really care i i don't know right yeah i i I think, I mean, obviously this is a long-term play and Qualcomm is banking on higher quality Bluetooth earbuds with, you know, supporting higher quality codecs with, you know, the, the, the Moore's law of, well, not Moore's law, but the idea that over time, the higher, higher quality components will be able to be put into the same size container and, you know, so until it gets smaller and smaller and then there are diminishing returns. But at the same time, you're dealing with physics here and you cannot put a massive driver inside a tiny pair of wireless earbuds. It will never compete with a good pair of over-the-ear headphones. Right. Wired or wireless. Size, yeah. I I guess this also helps with the uh, lowest common denominator type of idea, right? Where... If you're doing stuff like this, eventually, a few years from now, it will trickle down and even the cheapest of headphones will be way better as we've seen, really. I mean, cheap earbuds now are, I would say, for the most part, worthwhile. They, they at least deliver a decent experience, whereas cheap earbuds two years ago were largely garbage. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, Martin, what, what pair of earbuds are you kind of going to these days? What's, what's the one in your pocket? I'm very much not an audiophile, so <laughs> I have not toggled my Spotify away from the default settings, I'm afraid. <laughs> and, there uh, we go. <laughs> I use uh, the Galaxy Buds Plus because uh, they were cheap. They were 50 euros on a sale, so I thought that's a good deal. Um, and I also used the uh, bundled USB-C AKG headphones that came with my Fold 2 as my primary wired. 
<laughs> oh right, Fair. When, so. when phones came with with earbuds, that like one or two years. I forgot about the AKG thing. I yeah. love it. I love it because it, ni- it has that nice braided cord, right? Yeah, it works with. Yeah, uh, I like that. My my Samsung phones. It works with Windows. It works with Mac. It works with everything, yep. and uh, you don't need a headphone jack for it. I think it's I, a really I mean, good I, I think it was the Pixel Three that Google included those USB C headphones in, right, Daniel? Yeah, I think so. I I used those up until think sometime last year it might have been closer to two years ago now but i I use them for way longer than i expected to because i I liked them they were comfortable they were good enough and uh, you know again like the wireless ones i wasn't a huge fan of the wireless ones so having something that just i could plug in and it worked and i didn't have to worry about pairing was great to me yes that's that's exactly my thought process I have the wireless ones if I if I'm out and about and if I go to the gym or whatever. But uh, when I'm home, I just plug the USB C ones in, and then I'm I'm happy. Yeah, it's so interesting, I, Nick. I I know you know this, but with the Oculus Quest not supporting Bluetooth audio, I had to find a pair of earbuds that are comfortable to wear during workouts, and I f- ended up using the pair of. Um, blackberry earbuds that were that came with my key one oh, amazing um, like four three three and a half years ago yeah. and they're quite good i mean they're just a pair of normal three and a half millimeter uh, earbuds but they're quite good they have stayed in very comfortably over dozens of workouts and it's just really interesting every day when i do this i have to plug in a pair of earbuds to my right. oculus yeah, and it's like it's so, it feels so counterintuitive. But once you're once you're wearing them, it's like you don't you don't even think about it. Right now, something I didn't see in this announcement, and I don't know if I just missed it or what, but they they didn't talk about latency, did they? No, because that was part of the original, um, the ad- like adaptive. part of the elite gaming announcement where okay the newer Snapdragon SOCs will be able to go down to like sub sub 100 millisecond latency on some earbuds but that's yeah. not lossless that's um aptex adaptive right yeah and that's that's the main problem for vr right now is when you have that level of uh latency between what your brain and your eyes perceive versus what your ears hear it screws you up so that's <laughs> yeah that's fair. it'll be nice to see them uh, making more headway on the latency issue because that's definitely a, a problem in the VR space, but we won't get into that now. <laughs> yeah, they're they're claiming eighty milliseconds with Aptex Adaptive. Which... Yeah, I think it's going to have to be like thirty or maybe even lower than that. I'm not sure. Mm. It's going to have to be real, real low. Even displays, like it, they had to get one millisecond displays. That's why they used OLED for so long because you can't have that latency. It, it just messes you up. <laughs> yeah, they, they are claiming Aptex low latency does uh, 40 milliseconds, but I don't know if that's used in any hmm. hardware products that um, I can tell. Yeah, that, that might be low enough for some people. That's, yeah, you know, again, that's a whole other discussion that's very, very nuanced. Yeah, I, I mean... Just gaming and like um, latency in VR is, it's so obvious, right? Like, I mean, this is a t- total tangent, but the earliest 
supernatural, uh, the earliest supernatural packages were not timed exactly to the music. There was a an, like a very slightly perceptible lag. Right. And if I go back to like May or June of 2020 and I play um, a set from then, if you hit one of the, you know, w- one of those, I forget what they call it, like the balls or whatever. The orbs, yeah, whatever they orbs, are. There is a slight delay. It's maybe a couple of milliseconds, but it's enough to throw you off. Yes. And at some point they fixed that issue. And <laughs> in the last few weeks, they have been tweaking the haptics so when you hit one of the orbs it feels much more natural like they've got it down to a science now but i didn't realize how much of a science they'd gotten it down to until i went back and played a bunch of sets from last summer and was like oh this is super janky this is not good and yeah you i i would i would have loved to be a fly on the wall in their offices trying to figure out like how they solved that latency problem because it cannot have been easy. Yeah. And, and that, that whole going back thing might, um, might be how we experience this new lossless audio from Qualcomm, right? Like maybe when you first listen to it, you don't notice how much better it is, but then when you go back to another pair of earbuds or whatever that doesn't support it, that's when you'll go, Oh yeah, I can hear that symbol in the background now when I can't hear Mm -hmm. it before. You know, even just the tinny sound that that uh, lossy audio has, you can tell when that codec is lower quality or when the bit rate is lower or something like that. So uh, we'll see. I'm I'm excited just because, like I said, I, I was a holdout for a long time. I finally made the Bluetooth move and the better it gets, the happier I'll be. <laughs> yeah. Also, companies like Razer are building gaming earbuds specifically for this reason. Sure. Right. So they they are anticipating increased demand for exactly that. Um, let's shift and talk a little bit about wearables. So this week, right after Samsung's debut of the Galaxy Watch 4 series, literally goes on sale on Friday. The following Monday, August 30th, Fossil unveils the Gen 6, which is a Pair you know, a bunch of different models, um, starting price of two ninety nine, so more expensive than the Galaxy Watch Four, the smallest version, and the actually the biggest, the bigger version, which is two seventy nine, uh, running a Snapdragon Wear forty one hundred plus, so a slightly faster version of the forty one hundred, but it launches with Wear OS two, with a promise to upgrade to Wear OS three in. 2022, 2022. Yeah, sometime early. next year, which is still wow. f- at least four months away. Um, you were in that briefing, Nick. Yeah. What was your perception of how Fossil is handling this release and how they see the software experience defining how users will enjoy the product? Or is that not really a factor for them? It seemed to me that they were more focused on hardware this time around. So um, that 4100 enables uh, a more continuous heart rate uh, monitoring. So a much lower uh, frequency, or maybe a much quicker frequency, rather, of measuring your heart rate versus what they could do before. 
Um, the charging speed is uh, what was it? Fifty percent fast? Eighty percent faster? Yeah. Sorry, I didn't. I didn't go far enough. <laughs> it's it's way faster. So in thirty minutes, basically, you get an eighty percent charge, which correct me if I'm wrong, is like four times faster than the Galaxy Watch Four. Yeah, it's that's that's the one massive advantage here, I think. Yeah, so that's that's a huge advantage. And they said just in general, you know, the, the OS is way snappier. Uh, the animations are smoother because you don't have this literally ancient processor trying to do all sorts of things it was never intended to do. Um, other quality of life features like Google Assistant hearing you and responding in more than 15 minutes or <laughs> what? What whatever obnoxious amount of time that it took. Obviously, that's a you know bit of an exaggeration, but it took way too long in the past with some of these um, older Qualcomm processors. They just they couldn't deal with what Assistant was trying to do, um, and it's it's a lot of stuff like that that I got from them. Um, of course, there's there's also the SpO2 sensor. Uh, it's a new it's a new sensor, and then uh, they have several other little. Um, things tied into those heart rate and SpO2 sensors that they were talking about. But yeah, they, they definitely downplayed the Wear OS 3 thing. And I think that has more to do with the fact that Samsung and Google are very buddy-buddy this time around. And I can tell that uh, there was a bit of contention there and that Google is definitely playing favorites with Samsung. And sort of treating its other manufacturers as, you know, second-class citizens in, in a way. Because from what I can tell, they're not entirely sure when Wear OS 3 is going to come out because Google won't commit to a timeline. I mean, there's there's all sorts of things that I'm sure we could have gone in, but, you know, they don't want to mess up their relationship with Google, so they're not going to tell me too much. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> so, you know, it's it definitely seems to me like a lot of the onus here is on Google because they are trying to save their platform. They made an agreement with Samsung, and I think it's just, this is pretty much what you're going to deal with this year, is if you want Wear OS 3, you're going to have to get a Galaxy Watch 4. And maybe we'll get some other ones, I don't know. But yeah, this this is definitely a more hardware-focused release. Martin, I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on, on this release cycle for, for Wear OS 3. Um, first, have you used the Galaxy Watch 4 or seen it? Uh, I've used it very briefly at the Samsung event. So for like 10 minutes or something. So obviously with Google co-announcing Wear OS 3 with Samsung back in May at Google I.O., rolling out the actual hardware with Samsung in August, and then ostensibly stonewalling on its partners like Mobvoi and Fossil until late, like until at least early next year, you're looking at a situation where, as Nick said, they are playing favorites. But on the on the one hand, unlike the competitive dominance of something like Android, where Google really is in the driver's seat in that in those negotiations, as we've seen through the Epic trial with a lot of the discovery documents, Google really telling their telling its partners, you know, where to go and and what to do if it want if they want to keep bundling Google services. With Wear OS, they really are not in a leveraged position. And if it really feels like Samsung had the advantage here and as a result was able to leverage that partnership to 
launch Wear OS 3 on the Galaxy Watch like far earlier. Um, and it's it's interesting because we're not really sure how Google is going to provide Wear OS to its partners, right? It's not like they release an AOSP version of Wear OS to Mobvoi and Fossil the way that they have done Android for, for 10 or 11 years now. And I'm wondering what you think is going to happen to the market now that Samsung is the clear favorite. It's the one that Google is banking on to increase Wear OS market share. And Fossil and Mobvoi are just kind of like throwing up their hands going, all right, well, I guess we're, we're going to try still for a while, but uh, it, it may not actually work. Yeah, I think I think it's pretty interesting, and 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 the favoritism is very very obvious if you look at these uh, release schedules. Uh, I think it makes sense in the. I I suppose like Samsung was such a huge win for the platform that it made sense to deprioritize everybody else and to to uh, give them favors essentially. Um, and and I think the reason why they can probably get away with it is because while there are many other smartwatch platforms, none of them are open as far as I know. So th- there's nowhere else for somebody to like uh, Fossil to go unless they develop their own platform. So, um, you know, ha- having a half a year or a year of, uh, of um, uh, Samsung's dominance over everybody else, the, it'll, it'll probably be terrible for those companies, but most of them don't have anywhere else to go. So this was probably needed to get Samsung on board. Uh, and then after that, they can, I assume, go back to to being a more, I guess, neutral platform again. That would be my guess. But in the meantime, you may see the mo- the fossils and mob voice of the world abandon the platform. It could right? be, yeah. Unless... And, and then Unless the unless the the outcome of the Samsung Play is that they finally actually build a really good platform and they get better app support and better everything, because right. there's higher volumes, and then that platform on the long term is more attractive uh, than it was before the Samsung partnership. That's that's the potential good outcome. Plus, the other thing that I I wonder is that the the supposed benefit of Wear OS three is that the manufacturers can now essentially ship their own skin on top of Wear OS. So I wonder right. if Fossil and Mobvoi will be allowed to ship their own skins as well and whether they will actually do so or whether they'll just stick with stock Wear OS. And I also wonder whether we'll start having the same discussions in the Android forums as we had with smartphones where, you know, everybody prefers stock, but I don't know, Xiaomi's whatever MIUI is good enough. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, if you think Oppo... Um, messed with Wear OS 2. Imagine what Oppo is going to do with Wear OS 3. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm I'm very interested to see what these outlier companies will do with skinned Wear OS. I think you're absolutely right. I don't think it's in Mobvoi's um, budget to heavily skin or modify Wear OS. But at the same time, every year Google gives us what it believes Android should look like based on the Pixel release cycle. We don't have a Pixel Watch to showcase Google's biased version of Wear OS 3. And if that's the case, then most people, like they do with Samsung phones, and that's their impression of Android, most people's impressions of Wear OS 3 and Wear OS in general from now on will be will be um, you know set by Samsung and yeah. its 
flavor its opinions on Wear OS. And that includes Bixby over Google Assistant, at least for now. It includes massive modifications to the standard workflow. You know, if you think about the changes made to Wear OS 2 uh, over 1, I actually think Google did a lot of excellent work making Wear OS more usable. And I think it was let down by Qualcomm's terrible hardware. And if you put stock Wear OS 2 on a watch as powerful as the Watch 4, I think it would be a much better experience. And even with the latest Snapdragon Wear 4100 platforms, we, we're not there yet. It's better, but it's not quite at the same level as, as a W920 on the Watch 4. So I'm very curious to see what happens. Uh, we still may or may not get a Pixel Watch this year, but I'm, I, I'm leaning towards... One? I don't know. I, I, I want one, and I've been sort of like leaning towards saying it will happen. But over the last few weeks, we've seen Pixel 6 announced. We've seen a lot of leaks. We have not seen any additional Pixel Watch leaks so it's possible, yeah. but I, I'm leaning more towards saying it's not going to happen. Yeah, given the state of uh, the Pixel announcements and the fact that I'm pretty sure they announced it early because everything got leaked early again, and this is not the first time they've done that, I, I'm pretty sure we would have seen a Pixel Watch by now if it were a thing. Yeah, the only <laughs> Pixel Watch leak has been the John Prosser front page tech leak from when he leaked the Pixel 6. Right. Um, and that was a, the... the the Pixel 6 renders were correct. We've now proven that out. Yeah. But the Pixel Watch, which was alongside in those renders, and, and ostensibly those renders were gleaned from marketing material, the watch is now nowhere to be seen. So, yeah, I don't know. I kind of wonder if that's like an engineering sample that they're using to make Wear OS 3, you know, and it's not oh, an actual possibly. Pixel Watch product. You know? You're right. Actually, that's not a not, not a bad supposition. Yeah, or it could be that they had a watch planned, but then something happened and now it's not planned anymore. I suppose that's also, I guess, sure. plans I mean, can any, change in a couple of months. Heck, we have this chip shortage. I mean, that could yeah, have affected exactly. it too. They could have just said, you know what, we can't make the volume. I mean, heck, look at the Pixel 5a, two markets, whoop de doo You know, yeah. <laughs> yep. they clearly have been affected and they're not a huge hardware player. So it's not like they had the pull Samsung has. I mean, speaking of um, the Snapdragon Wear platform, just today, Qualcomm, uh, WinFuture has a has, has a report on the the Wear 5100, which is going to be the successor to the 4100 Plus. It'll be announced either later this year or early next year. It's going to have support for LPDDR4 RAM. Um, it'll have support for over a gigabyte of RAM, which is we haven't seen that in Wear OS yet, I believe. Oh, no, we have. Sorry, the TickWatch 4. TickWatch 3 has a gig and a half. But it it's supposed to have um, A53 cores, um, which will require the use of an ultra-low coprocessor. But I don't really believe Qualcomm when it says it's going to fix its wearables um, platforms. Like, they're just bad They've always been bad. How many years has it been now? (laughs) They haven't fixed it. (laughs) It's been, they put the Snapdragon 410 inside the original Wear watches, and then they slightly modified it for the subsequent versions, but called it the Snapdragon Wear 2100. And that's been what it's been for five years, six years. So 
I don't know. Even the like the thirty one hundred was still basically built on the same A seven Cortex A seven chip um, cores. It's only the forty one hundreds that are using slightly more modern cores. The A fifty three cores that are rumored for the fifty one hundred that actually should be fairly powerful. I mean, I'm that should be enough. You don't need more than that. But then you're dealing with energy consumption and can Qualcomm build a low power coprocessor that's efficient enough to take the load off those A53 cores so that you're not recharging your watch every four hours. Like, who knows? Do you, do you expect Samsung to start uh, licensing their or selling their Exynos uh, smartwatch chip or are they going to keep it for themselves? What's your, what's your guess? 100% they will keep it for themselves. Mm-hmm. 100%. There is no incentive for Samsung with its ecosystem play to give the 920 to anybody else, especially with the lead it has now. Like the it's performance on the chip. Watch 4 is so much better than any Wear OS watch I've used before. I see. It's it's night and day. So yeah, I I don't know. I'm I'm not hopeful for Qualcomm's Wear platform. And as a result, then I'm not hopeful for Fossil or Mobvoi because what alternatives do they have? Yeah, I mean, if they're if they're late on uh, on Wear OS three and they don't get a good chip, then that's a little bit difficult to <laughs> yeah, to build a smartwatch out of. Uh, let's let's go through some news quickly, guys. So Microsoft announced its Surface event in at the end of September, September twenty second, to be specific. We are expecting a whole bunch of Surface products, including a Surface Pro eight and a, a Surface Book three, perhaps uh, or four. I think that it's the Surface Laptop 4, Surface Book 3. I, I can't remember all the books and surfaces. A, a Surface. <laughs> a, yeah, many surfaces for on which to... Surfy. Uh, but we also are expecting a, a successor to the Duo called the, micro, uh, the Surface Duo 2. Uh, the Duo was a, a mess when it came out. It's still a mess today. It's still running Android 10. I have no idea what happened, but Microsoft just did not get its stuff together to update it to Android 11. Um, Martin, I'm curious about what you think, given that you are currently using a Fold 3, you have a lot of experience with folding phones. Do you think the Duo 2 is still going to be sort of a pet project for Microsoft, or does it have the potential to actually sell in, in higher volumes this time? I don't believe in the form factor. I think I think it could have worked uh, if they brought it out like a year or two before the foldables. Uh, then it might have kind of filled a niche that the foldables are filling now. But uh, I think the only real benefit of of the fold uh, of the the dual screen form factor over something like the Galaxy Fold is that the screen is more durable essentially. Uh, and now with Samsung basically solving that problem, like you can just see that all the things like waterproofing and durability, all the all the potential benefits of of a dual screen form factor, they're being fixed on foldables. And foldables just offer you a really big, continuous, uninterrupted screen. Uh, it, it's I think it's <laughs> it's not there's no place for this on the market for for a significant number of people. And the problem is that just like with foldables, you have the same problem where um, in order for it to work really well, not only the uh, device maker, so in this case, Microsoft has to optimize the, the Android uh, system running on top of it, which <laughs> is clearly a lot of work because they're not doing a great job at it. Uh, but also app makers would have to, to make their apps take advantage of the, the form factor. 
and app makers are not going to work on a form factor that has low uh, usage. If there's no other manufacturer other than Microsoft that adopts the form factor, then it will never have uh, large uh, um, market share numbers. So it's, it will never be uh, a priority for app app developers to to optimize their stuff for it. So I, I think this is like a vicious cycle where uh, it never really breaks out of it. Yeah, I I think what's interesting is uh, there are people who believe Microsoft's approach to a dual screen phone is actually better if you if you want to do more than one thing at a time. But that doesn't bear out when you lo- when you look at the Fold 3 and how much Samsung has improved the multitasking experience. Yeah. It's it's just night and day compared to last year and it's it's a very very intuitive multitasking experience that i actually find myself using a fair bit and with microsoft on the surface duo when when the spanning worked right you could attach two you know two discrete apps uh, across both screens and then you then you expand one and it takes up the entirety of the display or both displays there's still that gap in the middle there. That's not going to go away. Yeah. Um, it's awkward. It's way too wide. And Microsoft put together some beautiful hardware. But physics are physics. And two large displays, thin as they are, it makes for a very awkward experience in the pocket in in your hand. And yeah, I don't. I don't know. I'm. I, I'm not as hopeful as I was before the Fold Three came out. And then there's the right. whole thing about how it's probably not going to be water resistant. It's probably going to be so thin that it may damage easily like like last year's model. If Microsoft really wants to improve the user experience, it has to narrow the phone, but also make it get slightly thicker. And I don't think that's a compromise the company wants to make. So we'll see. I mean, if it's not going to be waterproof, then we're at a point where literally the foldable alternative is more... Uh, durable than the dual yeah, screen more robust, so what's right. the point <laughs> which is crazy yeah nick did you ever use the the surface duo no i did not but i have two friends that have it um i think at this point both of them have gotten rid of it but um sorry um they both liked the form factor because it folded flat and you know those wider screens if you only wanted to use one they were maybe a little more usable than the Fold 3's narrow screen, or I guess, the, you know, the Fold 2 as well. But um, I think that probably was the positive of their experience. The rest of it was kind of like, well, you know, maybe this is a cool idea if they got their stuff together, but they don't. <laughs> yeah, they don't. <laughs> and it's, it's really, it's not so much the hardware, it's the software that was the, the, true, yes. the true disaster here. Right. So... That's what I, I, I just, as much as I believe Microsoft is working with Google to build better folding or dual screen experiences on Android, the fact that before the Surface Duo 2 was announced, the, the original Duo never received Android 11 um, or was even mentioned as a candidate for the Android 12 beta, just, it rubs me the wrong way. Like, yeah. the, the monthly updates the that Microsoft... Yeah, Microsoft promised monthly updates with significant improvements to the performance and, and, and user experience. And over the first six months or so, that actually happened. I mean, some of the updates were were great and they really did improve things. And then they 
slowed and there are just now security patches that come out every month with no user-facing updates. So yeah, I, I don't know. Um, talking about uh, from like a completely different universe, uh, Samsung is expected to announce and unveil the Galaxy S21 FE, but due to the aforementioned chip shortage, it may only arrive at the end of October. Um, previous reports stated that it would arrive it in early September, but that's been amended. So this was one of the most popular phones of 2020, the Galaxy S20 FE. Uh, it really just overshadowed the S20 series in general. With the S21 coming in $200 cheaper, though, I'm not really sure why this phone exists, especially since you can get the S21 for like $700 now. We've had this discussion on the on the podcast, but Martin, I'd love your high-level take on the S21 series, what you think about it, and whether the S21 FE as kind of a mainstream intro to the S21 is even necessary. Yeah, I... <laughs> I'm at the, I'm at the same place. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what exact niche this is trying to fill. Um, isn't the the regular S21 already plastic on the back? Yeah, and it has a 1080p screen as well, right? Yeah. So, like the two like most obvious corners that could be cut. I don't know how you'd cut them unless. <laughs> the S21 yeah, is already the FE, basically, been, right? Exactly. They've already been cut. So. <laughs> Uh, I don't, I'm I'm not sure. So I, I I think last year's S20 FE was fantastic, and uh, I I was very excited about it, and I thought that this was a great strategy. But but unless they somehow make it significantly cheaper, but then if they don't reduce the if they, they don't get rid of the Snapdragon 888, and they keep the same cameras, then I'm not sure what else they could significantly make cheaper. So uh, I don't I don't know what exact role this is supposed to take. They won't put a charger in the box. Oh, wait, wait. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Martin, I'm curious, based on crowd uh, usage data, if if you're willing to share, like, is Samsung by far the top Android manufacturer accessing the app? Uh, No, I think uh, Samsung and OnePlus are the, the, the two tops. And is the S20, like, can you, do you have breakdown information on, the series, yeah. like, are a lot of people using the latest generation? Uh, let me check. Because it's, so. it's always interesting. Like, a, a, an app like Crowd, you know, people who visit AC, like, they're, they're not the normal Android customer. And I do yeah. wonder if Samsung is anticipating this S21 FE being far more, you know, available in, in markets that the S21 was maybe more expensive in or they were they're going to use this as a way to sort of um undercut many of the the OnePlus, Xiaomi, Oppo, Vivo mid-range phones in parts of the world where the S21 is still considered a, a flagship and if that's the case then what price does the S21 FE need to be yeah. to compete with like the OnePlus 9 RT that's coming out in a couple of weeks or, you know, any number of Xiaomi phones that, that are better than this in, in most ways, but aren't available in North America. So I, I can tell from crowd usage uh, that the S20 FE definitely uh, way higher numbers in crowd than any of the other S20 series phones. 
including the Ultra, the S20 Plus, and the regular S20. Uh, the In terms of S21, um, for us, the Ultra is doing by far the best. So the uh, we ha- have 37 versus 15 for the regular and 11 for the Plus. So it's, it's quite a big jump for the Ultra. And then in our app, I think maybe partially because I'm pushing the app and I'm a big Fold fan, the... Actually, the Fold is doing quite well as well. So uh, almost as high as the Ultra, the S21 Ultra, the Fold 2 so far. And we have uh, we have quite a quite a good number of uh, Flip and Fold 3 users already as well. I think about 10, 10, 15. Wow, that's that's incredible. Yeah, you can, they're definitely much faster than the, the Flip 5G or the Fold 2 were. So the, the new foldables are definitely taking off much faster. Oh yeah, we saw that same interest in the Fold Three and Flip Three this year that we never saw with the Fold Two or the Flip Five G. Like, yeah, it's it's like immediately obvious that it's mainstream. Yes, this year, I I know three people who bought a Flip <laughs> personally, it's, like yeah, not personally. not tech reviewers, but like just regular people. Yes, 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 exactly. Huh. Which is is I I've never never seen that. I mean, people were interested in my Fold 2 when they saw it, but nobody was like, hey, I want that. Right. Uh, well, not nobody, but like <laughs> few people, like, you know, the, the default reaction was not, I'm going to buy that. It was just more just amazement on its own. Uh, but but with the flip, uh, it, it's very frequently, hey, how much does that cost and where can I get one? Incredible. So staying with Samsung, the company announced a 200 megapixel camera sensor called the Isocell HP1. This is a successor to the very popular 108 megapixel sensor that we found in the Galaxy S20 Ultra, S21 Ultra, Note 20 Ultra, many Xiaomi phones, um, a Motorola phone, like the HM1 was is pretty common these days. Um, it's become almost a commodity to have a 108 megapixel camera on your phone. The company's saying that it is uh, better in in basically every way than its predecessor. It can bin 16 pixels to get to become a 12.5 megapixel sensor with 2.56 micron pixels, uh, which is bananas. Like just, I mean, if that works well, then that just will be very, very useful for low light. Uh, The other thing that the company's claiming is that this is the first camera sensor to be able to modify its pixel binning alignment on the go so it can become a two by two four by four or take full uh 100 or 200 megapixel shots so what that will mean is you can essentially bin up you you can do uh 12 megapixels you can then do what will the two by two be uh it won't be a hundred and so it's four so, so it's 50. Two, it'll be 50, yeah. 50, right. So it'll be either 12 megapixels, 50 megapixels, or 200 megapixels. And you can, you'll be able to potentially switch between those two depending on, or those three depending on the environment. So yeah, I would expect this to be the, the um, camera sensor on the S22 series, uh, unless you guys think there's, no, there's a reason it won't be. But uh, what do you think of this, Martin? Yeah, I think so. Uh, plus all the all the Xiaomi's and Realme's and whatever else Vivos to come. Uh, I'll be interested to see if if Apple ever adopts like a really high 
resolution large sensor or if they're just going to stick with their current setup more or less forever. Well, I mean, Google's moving to a 50 megapixel sensor this yeah. year. So Apple will be the, the lone holdout at the 12 megapixel range. So we'll see. Yeah. Um, in other news, Google is rumored to be working on a custom Chromebook ARM chip, um, which will debut in 2023. Now, this was part of this, the, the rumor around the GS101 um a chip that it will debut in, in the Pixel 6. The original rumor said that Google was also working on Chromebook chips, but this gives you a time, la- a time frame of 2023 and that Google was, quote, particularly inspired by Apple's success <laughs> and that it wants to try to not match that, obviously, but to try to follow in its footsteps. So this is not surprising, right? I'm, I, I think once Google gets into the custom silicon game, it'll just go you know, get every bit of hardware with its own uh, custom custom chips. But uh, Nick, when you see this, what does this tell you about Google's strategy, um, especially given that Microsoft is working with Qualcomm to build ARM-based SOCs for its laptops and tablets? Chrome OS has been a, a pretty big success for Google. They've made significant headway over the years. I, I think it's interesting to see them doing this at the same time that Microsoft is getting Android apps into Windows 11 because, you know, that was, I guess, sort of an advantage for Chrome OS. I'm not sure how many users actually use Android apps all the time on their Chromebooks, but, you know, any sort of performance improvement there could be a big deal for them, especially if the Windows 11 version of uh, running Android apps is not all that great. And I know Microsoft just announced that it's not that feature is not launching with Windows 11 next month when the OS launches. So, you know, they still have time for this. But, you know, obviously, let's see. I mean, we're, we're talking 2023 here that Google's chip is going to be done if, if it's even done by then. So at that point, you're probably going to have a year plus of Android usage in Windows 11. I don't know how much of a big deal that'll be, but it's it's kind of cool to see Google finally getting into this stuff because we've had these things rumored for how many years? I mean, Google's been kind of, you know, dipping its toe in the water with the Pixel series um, with with its little co-processors and AI processors and like just the small little bits here and there that they've been dabbing in. Um, you have the Titan M2 stuff, which... I kind of think that is maybe more of a Trojan horse um, for them than anything else, because where they've seen the most success is in education and things like that. And they can expand into enterprise, especially if they um, leverage that Titan M2 for enterprise grade security. Like they they have a lot of room that they can, um, you know, make up here in those types of markets. Yeah, especially if they are obviously selling one of the one of Chromebooks selling points is its privacy and security. Sure. The fact that it is um, it's not necessarily as open to um, attack as Windows. And although Windows 11 is coming out on October 5th, which is ostensibly more ARM friendly, more secure, all the things that Chrome OS is aiming to be. Uh, it's still not the 
Windows. Um, what was the Windows version that was going to be on the the Surface Neo? What was it called? Windows 10X. Yeah, yeah, 10X. So it's not the 10X with with complete sandboxing yeah. the way that um, Chrome, you know, Chrome OS is. So I still think that's a selling point. And with Google coming out and saying, "Well, Tensor, whatever it's called, like Tensor Chromebook, is going to be, you know, a fully locked down chip with a Titan, um, you know, security element in it, secure element, things like that." I have no doubt this will be aimed at the enterprise even more so than it is now. Right. And and coming from, you know, an enterprise IT environment and in that position, um, I know people are ready to ditch Windows if they can, you know, because a lot of that enterprise stuff. I, Microsoft has done a really good job of making sure that it's the only one that offers enough features, enough stuff to satisfy, you know, enterprise IT groups. And Google has been slowly adding things here and there, and they have a pretty robust uh, cloud-based system now. You know, they have Active Directory integration. They have a lot of things that could help push them into this even further. And right. I think as we we see more and more uh, companies, especially smaller companies, move into cloud-based IT, they're going to want something like a Pixelbook that you know, or whatever Chromebook that is using these things that is secure, that they can make sure um, is up to date, that they don't have to have an IT department to manage all these things and make sure their stuff is safe. Like, I think there's there's a pretty big market here for Google to push themselves into, and they could pretty easily overtake Microsoft if they do this right in the way that we saw, you know, the education thing where they just did a, awesome job in the education side and they convinced a lot of schools to buy their stuff and move to it yeah yeah absolutely i i i mean this feels inevitable but uh, i'm glad it's happening sure. i i agree that uh, i think one of the biggest weaknesses of microsoft is that even though they have an operating system that is very feature rich and that has all the legacy support and everything uh, they have a really hard time making big changes and and pushing through a significant uh, you know, security uh, stuff like we've seen in Windows uh, 11 or the sandboxing that they tried with Windows 10X. Uh, there's always a lot of pushback and and uh, moving to different uh, chip architectures or anything significant that significantly changes Windows uh, fundamentally is, is just very difficult for them to push through. So if somebody wants to outcompete them, then uh, something like Chrome OS, which works as far as I know quite well on ARM, where Windows is still going to need like two, three, four, five years or however long, uh, to make right. the transition, if, if they can essentially push for better ARM chips uh, on Chrome OS, then they just get a strategic advantage that Microsoft simply won't be able to match on on large scales, and and I think that gives Chrome OS a couple of years of a of an advantage there. We shall see. We have until twenty twenty three to find out. Yeah, right. in case they execute well, yes. <laughs> yeah, the yeah exactly. <laughs> then they may just abandon it entirely. <laughs> yeah, they could just... just two years from now, so it's possible. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh my god! I, in my head, I was thinking it was next year, but it is not. My god! I mean, it's really not quite two years. I guess it depends. No, but I'm just when we're talking. Twenty twenty three. For some reason, thinks it's it's twenty twenty two right now. Um, <laughs> maybe I just want this year to end. All right. The last topic I want to talk about is something Martin you said you are working on for your very popular Friday checkout, 
segment, uh, which is its own YouTube channel, which you should also subscribe to. Uh, it's based on a new rule that uh, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, the Communist Party of China passed, uh, I believe it was last week, limiting how long minors can play video games to one hour a day on weekend and holiday evenings. Um, and they cannot play any online games on school days. And to enforce this, they are working with the big uh, providers like Tencent to enforce these rules. And I want to get a quick summary from you of what you think about this and whether it will have implications outside of China's borders uh, and just in general what you think uh, you know, the, the effects of, of this change will be. Yeah, so, uh, so it's Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, uh, one hour a day maximum. And there's a, like, an, like an allocated time slot. So I think it's uh, 8 to 9 p.m. that you're allowed to play in, which feels very, uh, I don't know, specific for something uh, as innocent-seeming as, as, as video games. And this ban, by the way, only goes for online games. So if you have, I don't know, a, a Game Boy or or... You play uh, The Witcher three on your computer or whatever it is, or, and then then you can you can play as much of that as you want for now theoretically. So this is only for uh, for online stuff, um, but still it it, uh, it it's quite interesting that they're getting so hands on with it, um, and uh, I think the way they are trying to enforce it is that for online games there'll have to be an, an actual real ID verification process. Uh, to make sure that the the person who's playing is actually playing, so you have to input your ID number. Uh, and I think uh, game makers like Tencent are even uh, developing technologies, or, or I think have already developed technologies where they actually uh, on mobile games turn on the front-facing camera and uh, they they check whether uh, the person you're saying is playing is actually the one the 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 person who's in front of the phone. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's kind of the, the whole regulation as far as I can tell. And I think it's really interesting because it, in my head, this really mirrors, or like this really puts online games into the same kind of category as as basically alcohol or smoking or, or, or any of these things that we say are, as a society, we have decided here, at least in the West, that it is uh, something that is generally dangerous to people and uh, that minors should only be allowed to do or maybe not to be allowed to do at all, or only in limit uh, under certain limitations, um, and to put gaming into that category is a is a pretty uh, a pretty <laughs> new idea, I think. And and um, what implications that will have on different countries? I I think I think all these regulations until somebody does them, they seem crazy, and then once you see a country doing them, if if it goes well for them and. Uh, that there's no significant uh, uh, pushback from from the population and and the the the, the system generally works well. I, I I think these ideas generally tend to spread. Uh, I, I think, for example, like a, a ban on smoking in public places is something that was quite controversial, or or a ban of of smoking ads or or alcohol ads or product placements and so on. These are all things that. Uh, initially seemed strange or seemed like government overreach. And I think a lot of people would argue that even today are government overreach. Um, and, and and so it's interesting to see if uh, uh, once they're done, does the population react to it favorably? Do, do we decide that indeed too much online gaming is damaging for kids? Or, or do we just 
kind of just accept it and and uh, agree with it. I, I think it will probably not be implemented at least last, not in this way in, over here in the West. Uh, but I'll be paying attention for sure. Well, I didn't realize this policy was an extension of one that was enacted in 2019 that already limited miners to just 90 minutes a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guess they had seen either they'd seen a positive impact and wanted to further the, um, you know, wanted to further the success or they hadn't seen the intended positive impact and they wanted to push it further. But either way, um, you know, they are limiting miners to three hours of gaming in a week. And I, I, I hear what you're saying. If you have something that doesn't connect to the internet, you can play it as long as you want. But at the same time, China's online gaming culture is much more entrenched than even here in the West. And that mobile games in particular, many of which are owned by Tencent, yeah. are played in the you know by hundreds of millions of people. Uh, just you know, the context is completely different to what we have over here. Um, yeah, and I, I, I don't know. It's just, it's fascinating to me that this. I mean, you, they have to abide by it, right? Like China is in yeah. the middle of a massive tech crackdown. That's not just that doesn't just involve gaming, but it um, gaming seems to be the bugbear that that the CCP are, are really focused on right now. So, yeah, they're focusing on a couple of things, right? There's uh, online tutoring and and uh, after school education. That's a big one. Uh, all the finance apps. Uh, there's a big push for new data privacy laws, and then also. Uh, the online gaming stuff. So they're, they're really, I think, <laughs> decided that it's time to restructure how the internet works, basically. I do wonder how much the pandemic played into this because while not all of China was under lockdown in, in the early part of the pandemic, m- like big cities in China have gone into lockdown on and off over the last year. And while yeah. it does seem like the pandemic is pretty much under control there, they may have seen a massive spike in miners playing online games as they stayed home and then got concerned that this would continue once the, you know, once the virus, uh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't use that term, but once, once it spread, right. Once the, um, yeah. the, the, the culture essentially got, people got more comfortable with, with that kind of cadence, um, they wouldn't go back to playing less even once they're leaving for school. So, yeah, it's uh, it's, it's kind of kind of interesting. Uh, one other thing that we want to talk about this week before we wrap up is a ruling uh, by the Japan Fair Trade Commission. They worked out a deal with Apple to allow reader apps, which are apps that let you subscribe, purchase content, or um, subscribe to content for digital magazines, newspapers, books, audio, music, and video. So basically, anything that you can consume content with on the app store, they will now allow a single link in the app to uh, link out to a website to explain or manage accounts. And while this does not seem to be a big change on the surface, what it now allows developers to do is to explain to their users that they can sign up for a service outside of the play, outside of the app store. Um, which is a very big change because Apple has until now not allowed that. 
And companies like Netflix and Spotify just railed against this because they are at a huge disadvantage compared to Apple's own services, which do not require this provision. And uh, Netflix famously removed the ability to sign up to the service through the App Store because it did not want to give Apple a 30 or 15% commission. So Martin, like I know this is this is kind of breaking news, but when you take a look at this, this in addition to some of the other changes that Apple has 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 made to the App Store recently, do you see this regulatory structure around the world sort of working, do you see, working as intended, or do you see that Apple's just sort of giving, you know, a little as as little as it can in order to satiate these regulators and these lawsuits? but still holding on to as much as humanly possible. <laughs> I think they are, they are giving as little as possible for sure. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of uh, regulation coming from a lot of places. I think also just now, uh, Korea is uh, expected to essentially uh, force both Google and Apple to completely open up their app stores for uh, external payment processors, not just for reader apps, but for everything as far as I can tell. Uh, so... Uh, you know, there's just, it feels like every second day there's a new ruling like this. Um, and, and I think they'll they'll eventually get forced to to make significant concessions, whether they want to or not. Uh, um, I, I think it's probably for the better for the consumer, at least if in the case of reader apps, I definitely agree with it. Why shouldn't I not be able to sign up to Spotify through Spotify service? It makes no sense. Uh, but uh, I, I don't know where where exactly the the opening up will actually end and how far we can get with this. Yeah, I mean, earlier this week, Apple settled a class action lawsuit in the U.S. Um, by beginning to allow companies to email their customers, explaining <laughs> yeah. that they can sign up for services outside of the App Store. So this that was sort of a a, a broader. Um, attempt at trying to uh, satiate some of the developer demands, but the 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 one more recent, which is focused on reader apps, will actually let them inside the app link out to a website, um, yeah. but only for reader apps, not for games, which are by far the biggest revenue driver for Apple in the App Store. Although I, I think it, I think it makes sense to to give reader apps a different. Uh, different set of rules, I suppose, because they, they do have to provide the content in a sense, whereas the, the margins for a game, you know, if you provide a new skin or something like that, it doesn't cost basically anything to the developer to provide it. So maybe that's fair. This Korean, the South Korean law that will force Apple and, and Google to provide alternate payment solutions for in-app purchases, you know, the critics of this are saying that, well, it will not actually foment competition because payment processors aside from Apple and Google will still take a 15 to 30% cut. It's just that they are, that they're going to be allowed to enter the, enter the space. And, you know, Google and Apple have kind of been lowering their commissions for longer term subscriptions, et cetera. And while this will only be in effect in Korea, you know, it's not clear whether, Apple and Google will then use this as a as an impetus to open up their in-app purchases to other payment processors or if all these concessions that Apple 
is making trickling trickling out recently is is basically getting them to the point where they won't have to open up their payment processing to to competitors. Yeah. And uh you know, I'm I'm very curious to see what will happen with that. Yeah. Cuz India is actually experimenting with the same thing and they may mandate those same changes and India is a much bigger market than than South Korea, so there could be a snowball effect. We will we will see. All right, we are going to end things there. Uh, as we do every week, we end the show with uh, a segment I like to call "What's Making Us Happy." Um, given that Martin, you have not done this before, I'm going to put you on the spot. I asked you earlier to to think about something that's making you happy. So, what is making you happy this week? <laughs> this I don't know if it's this week in particular, but I'm generally very happy that foldables are finally going mainstream. As I'm a, f- a huge foldable fan, and I'm I'm happy to see them in the wild. All right, and uh, you you bought yourself a fold three, or you're indeed you're currently yes. happy with that decision. No no flip three regrets. Uh, no, I mean I I specifically bought the fold three because I have a particular video idea in mind that I want to do, so I I needed that. Otherwise, I would have probably stayed with my fold two because the changes, even though I like the S Pen, they're not that huge. Um, uh, and I might have bought a, a flip three otherwise just to, to 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 try it out, but but I'm happy that I ended on the fold three in the end. All right, well enjoy it. I will. Uh, Nick, what is making you happy this week? Hades. That's the game. That's so good. <laughs> so um, this one was interesting because, you know, this got like a gazillion Game of the Year awards when it came out. It had all sorts of praise. Everybody seemed to love it. But so I typically don't enjoy like Diablo style games. There are a few exceptions, but for the most part, that like isometric hack and slash style thing doesn't really appeal to me normally. And then also, uh, typically, Greek mythology is not really in my, you know, interest. There's, again, a few exceptions to that, but they're they're definitely few and far between. For whatever reason, this takes like several things that I normally don't like and puts them together. And all of a sudden, I like them. (laughs) It's it's really bizarre. But like uh, the voice acting, the story, the art, like there's just so many compelling things about this game that have just sucked really the me, my wife and my son in. And we've just been enjoying going through the story and finding out what's happening with Zagreus and and all this other stuff. And I I don't know. I just if you haven't tried it and you have Game Pass, you just have to download it. Um, It's also available on a, a bunch of other platforms. But I would have to say, even if you don't normally like these style of games, I highly recommend it because I typically don't either. <laughs> I 1000% agree. I'm in the same boat. I, I don't typically like this type of game. I don't care too much about Greek <laughs> mythology and I loved Hades. It's Absolutely. weird, isn't it? I don't know. It's just yes. some, every now and then it's one of those things where it's like there's just something special about it that you yeah. can't quantify. Yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I I bought Hades for Mac because it was one of the few games that supported Mac. Wow. And <laughs> it played like garbage on my MacBook Pro. It was the Intel, like last 2018 Intel MacBook Pro. And I then waited and waited until they released a test branch on Steam to support the M1. And once that happened, it was like a night and day difference. The M1 plays it beautifully, even over Rosetta. Um, nice. And 
but I still prefer playing on my Xbox. And I haven't started a new game yet because I got pretty far in Hades and I wanted to finish it on my Mac. But I'm really excited, not only because I love the game, but because I am that Diablo fan. Like I played Diablo 2 and 3 and basically more than any other game in, in my life. So I'm excited to go through Hades again now that I know a little bit more about how to play it. Um, but yeah, just super giant. They're, they're incredible. Just a, a bunch of really, really great people, it seems, as well as really good developers. So happy to see all the success that they're having. And, and can I just say that the game has no tutorials? Like you just play and you figure it out automatically. Like yeah. this is so amazing. Instead of like an hour of press this button to do that, press that button to duck under here. It just teaches ah, you how to right. play with the game, which I, I found incredible. Yeah, and, and the way they slowly reveal things yeah. is really cool. Yeah. Okay, so if we're on the topic of um, of Hades, there's a podcast I want to recommend. It is called um, Eggplant, The Secret Lives of Games. And there was an episode where they spoke to Supergiant about... Yeah, here it is. So it's episode 58 from, Deve- from December 4th, 2020. It's called Easing into Hades with Supergiant Games. And it's two members of the um, management team at Supergiant. And they talked exactly about that. They, they talked about designing the game in such a way where you wouldn't need a tutorial, but it didn't feel punitive every time you died. And that when you died, which you do all the time, you feel empowered to start another run rather than feeling like, oh, crap, I died. I don't want to do this again. And the things that they talk about in this podcast, you don't realize are like these, these tiny little decisions that make, that make a, a huge impact on the game. Like when they initially designed it, when, when you're in a, um, an area and you have to choose between two paths, each door has a little symbol on it, right? And it tells you yeah. kind of which, which power-up you're going to get if you go through that door. Initially, those power-ups were words. So they, they, they just had written words of what you would get. And they decided that that wasn't impactful during the early... And they talk a lot about how Hades during um, its early access period on Steam was probably the best thing that they could have done because they basically had two years of runway where they had these loyal beta testers that would play all day, every day, that would give them real-time feedback. And that informed the direction of the game far more than if they had just kind of gone heads down and done this development in-house without a broader testing base. And I don't know. I just, I found this podcast super, super interesting to listen to. So that's easing into Hades with Supergiant Games, Eggplant, The Secret Life of Games, this podcast. So that's actually going to be what's making me happy this week because <laughs> I just I just spoke for five minutes. So I will 100% listen to that. It's great. Really, Martin, it's, it's fantastic. So uh, now that we're ending, Martin, tell people where they can find you on the internet so they can learn more about what you do. Uh, I suppose at TechAltar on Twitter. Uh, I'm also TechAltar on YouTube. I also have a, another YouTube channel called The Friday Checkout. Um, I will soon have a Nebula original. <laughs> uh, that's coming soon. And that's I also awesome. Have, Congrats. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, and I will also, I also have, uh, an app called crowd that's written with two R's 
And that's a gadget community where people can review their gadgets and find reviews and keep up with all the new products that are being announced, basically. Well, you are doing a lot of things. So indeed, keeping busy. Good for you. Uh, well, Nick, I'm going to I'm, I'm going to plug you. You are at Guanatu on all the things. Uh, yep. And I am at Journey Dan at all the things. Send us feedback podcast at Android Central. We love hearing from you. Uh, we will be back next week with another episode. But until then, have a great week. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. See ya. Bye.